At American University, we don't just hope for change, we create it. We don't just dream of a better world, we make it a reality. With a graduate degree from AU, you'll access expert faculty and connections throughout DC to develop skills and experience to turn your passion into purpose. And that purpose can make all the difference in your career. Discover the difference a degree makes at American.edu/gradschool. MuggleCast is brought to you by GoDaddy.com. GoDaddy hosting plans are now more powerful than ever. Best of all, plans start at just $3.95 a month. And no matter what plan you choose, your site receives 24-7 maintenance and protection in the GoDaddy.com world-class data center. Plus, as a MuggleCast listener, enter code MUGGLE, that's M-U-G-G-L-E, when you check out, and save an additional 10% on any order. Get your piece of the internet at GoDaddy.com. This week's podcast is also brought to you by Audible.com, the Internet's leading provider of audiobooks with more than 75,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature, including fiction, nonfiction, and periodicals. For a free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com slash mugglecast. Hello, this is David Heyman, and I'm the producer of the Harry Potter films, and this is Mugglecast. Because the Flu Network just got X-rated, this is MuggleCast, episode 210, for October the 1st, 2010. Welcome everyone to MuggleCast. It's episode 210. Micah and Laura are here. And, well, Eric's supposed to be here, but as we all remember with episode 208, he delayed us so long, if you listen to, I think I put it in bloopers, I'm not sure. He delayed us so long that poor Laura was on for only like a half hour, 45 minutes, so... This time, we're just starting with Adam. We know how much everybody wants to hear Laura, so... <laughs> and less of Eric. <laughs> yeah, we can't only have her on for a half hour. That's just not enough Laura. Right. Well, gosh, so. Micah. <laughs> I'm all flattered and stuff over here. Well, Maybe it's, I it's, should leave. It's not me. It's what the people who write at the emails have to say. Oh, sure. Uh, sure, Micah. <laughs> we're on to you. Oh, damn. Well, as always, there's plenty of Deathly Hollows news to talk about, and we're going to continue our chapter-by-chapter series and also bring back an old favorite segment, and that would be favorites. Oh, man. Favorite favorite segment. Forgot about that one. So, everyone get ready. I'm Andrew Sims. I'm Laura Thompson. And I'm Micah Tannenbaum. Micah Tannenbaum, give us the news. What's going on? Well, actually, today Warner Brothers released high-res versions of Deathly Hollows Part 1 posters. Mm. 
And uh, I was wondering, you guys have a chance to take a look at these yet? Yeah. I it's it's funny, you know. There's this big emphasis on part one with the they're not at Hogwarts. So we see these posters, and it's Harry, Ron, and Hermione each behind. You know, you see some London landmark in the background, and Ron he's he's right <laughs> in front of power plants, which is so funny I to know. me. <laughs> I just like the the nowheres. <laughs> Not even a power plant <laughs> because it's toxic. Yeah, what's up with that though? Uh, to be honest with you, I really didn't like the posters. It, they were a little weird. I mean, they didn't really seem to fit with the the whole Harry Potter theme. Even though, like you said, they're not at Hogwarts anymore, but it it just didn't look right to me. Well, it seems like they're definitely trying to play up the action element of this. And I swear to God, like, every poster we get, they're all cut up. <laughs> like, and I like how these, there's, like, blood splatters in them. I'm like, really? I, uh, <laughs> who's doing the Photoshop? That is very odd. The red at the bottom of all of them? Like, what's going on there? What does that even mean? Like, it looks like it's out of uh, V for Vendetta or uh, Watchmen or something. Another Warner Brothers film. But yeah, it's definitely action oriented. These posters, uh, the the camera's nice and low, and the act you're sort of looking up at the actor, and it's it's sort of godlike. And um, I I like them actually. I don't think they're bad. My favorite one is actually Harry. Uh, maybe just because I have a crush on him. But the Ron and Hermione ones aren't as cool as the Harry one. I don't think. No, well, it, it looks and... like Armageddon though <laughs> in Harry's poster. And I mean, Andrew, you're totally right. The Ron poster, like he's just not even in front of anything remotely significant. Like you look <laughs> it's at, like, it's like it's out of the Simpsons. Yeah, you look at Harry and Hermione, and like they're clearly in London, but like Ron could be anywhere. It's just maybe I don't know. Maybe that's when he runs away. I don't know, but it's kind of silly. Well, there's definitely what happens with when. We we sort of get the idea from a couple screen caps we saw from the video game. Um, the Snatchers find the trio around a power plant. Now, of ah. course, this isn't in the book, but obviously between the stills from the video games and now this poster, we know there's definitely going to be some some action-oriented scene <laughs> around a power plant. Oh, well, great. So, so on top of the fact that they're being sought out by the Snatchers, they're going to get, like, radiation poisoning. Awesome. And see Homer walk out of the office <laughs> after a long day. <laughs> what else is going on, Micah, in the news? Author J.K. Rowling will appear on the Oprah show mm. tomorrow. We're recording on Thursday night. And yeah. So we don't have much to say about it other than the fact that she's going to be on the show. And it's going to be interesting to hear from Joe because we haven't heard from her in quite some time. Uh, hopefully she'll shed a little bit of light on the encyclopedia and uh, where she's at with that. Uh, it's hard to say. I mean, we know Oprah is going to ask the question, as it was teased already, Oprah's going to ask the question, will there be, will there ever be another Harry Potter? Oh, my so, God. We'll get an answer like that. I I imagine Joe's going to give us the best hints yet. Because, you know, in the past, when she, she's been asked about writing another Harry Potter book, you know, she sort of beats around the bush. And uh, we know she's working on an encyclopedia. And we know she's been busy writing based on her tweets. So I hope she announces and It would be very cool if she announced the book. But I'm not getting my hopes up. I feel like there would be more hype around this interview they would want to promote that Joe is going to announce her next book with Oprah. You know what I mean? Yeah, I just, I don't see it happening. I just don't Me see neither. where else she could go with this without 
being very contrived. You know what I mean? Like Harry's story is over. Like he's grown and he has kids now. So I mean, like, what is she going to write about? Like Harry Potter and the diaper genie? Like I just, (laughs) (laughs) I just don't see it happening. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, for Oprah's audience, that's the way you want to tease it. You know, will she ever write another, another Harry Potter? Um, of course, hardcore fans just want to know when the encyclopedia is coming out. Right. <laughs> I, I um, think you're right, though, Andrew. I, I think if that was going to be the case, they probably would have done a lot more PR around it. Yeah, um, yeah. So, um, Oprah did mention this is uh, one of her favorite interviews she's ever done, which is pretty exciting because I, I, I don't watch Oprah that often, but I imagine she doesn't say that with every interview. <laughs> And um, they released the commercial the other day. It's a, it's like a 30-second preview. And we see a couple quick shots of Oprah firing the questions at Joe. And at one point, Oprah says to Joe, Is it true that you still ride the bus? <laughs> like, what? <laughs> what? Joe still rides the bus? Come on. If she says yes to that, I will be very surprised. Because in the commercial... They they edited it so Oprah asked the question and you see Joe like cringe and look down like it looks all depressing, but you know is is Oprah losing her touch? Surely J.K. Rowling does not still ride public transit. <laughs> well, I mean it's possible when you think about where she lives. What possible? What like people wouldn't recognize her? Well, no, I mean just like it's the sort of I mean I've never been to Edinburgh, but from what I've heard, it's like sort of the kind of a small town, like a small city type community almost. Yeah. And I mean, the fact of the matter is we're one of the only countries in the world where people drive everywhere. I mean, everywhere else tends to have very good public transit. But that come is, on, Laura, Joe, Joe can, Joe can afford having her own private But she doesn't, uh, she doesn't car. drive. Didn't you guys know that? She actually like, don't you remember hearing that? She never learned to drive or she doesn't have a well, driver's license. Yeah. I'm not saying she drives. I'm saying someone drives her around. You actually, I don't know. I think, I don't know that she would be pretentious enough to have a chauffeur. <laughs> well, we, didn't we have this conversation, though, about flying, though, too, when uh, she was writing Deathly Hallows? She was uh, taking the manuscript back overseas with her or something along those lines, and she was getting on a Virgin Atlantic or a British Airways flight, and we were thinking to ourselves, wouldn't she have a private plane that would take her? I do not remember that, but... Yeah, I, I do remember this. Uh, and she took a public, a, a uh, public, uh, or a, you know, a, a regular flight. Yeah, yeah, because they wow. wouldn't let her get on the plane with the manuscript, which was in sort of this massive briefcase. And I guess she didn't want to check it. Mm. Oh, oh, right. So <laughs> I wouldn't want to check it either. That's that's a lot of money that's in that uh, suitcase. Well, I mean, where where would Joe even have gotten that question from about the bus? I mean, wouldn't we have known that? Like, so why would Oprah, like, is there a rumor going around that Joe rides the bus? <laughs> We're clearly just whatever. not for, good enough fans. For fun. She just rides the bus rides all the, day. <laughs> she could and buy the bus. the bus. And I mean, if she's riding on the bus, she can certainly uh, spend some more time Twittering. Exactly. That. What are you going to do well, when you're riding the bus? I don't Nobody know. Reads. Maybe Everybody she, tweets now. Maybe she doesn't have a smartphone, Andrew. You never know. I am riding the bus. <laughs> I'm riding it around town. It's a beautiful day. All right, it's time to move on. Yes. Before we move on, we'd like to remind everyone that this podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, the Internet's leading provider of audiobooks with more than 75,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature and featuring audio versions of many New York Times bestsellers. For listeners of MuggleCast, Audible is offering a free audiobook to give you a chance to try out their service. 
One audiobook to consider is The Hunger Games, a thrilling young adult novel that's actually part of a great trilogy. Nearly all the hosts of MuggleCast have read it, and we all really highly recommend it. So for a free audiobook of your choice, such as The Hunger Games, go to audiblepodcast.com slash MuggleCast. That's audiblepodcast.com slash MuggleCast. Well, we got some new casting news for Deathly Hallows Part 2, uh, f- particularly for the epilogue scene. Uh, Ryan Turner will play Hugo Weasley. This seemed to be everybody's favorite choice uh, in the comment section. Will Dunn will play James Sirius Potter, and Arthur Bowen will play uh, Albus Severus. And yeah, I saw a um, somebody did a side by side comparison of this Hugo Weasley actor uh, next to the young Ron or young Rupert Grint back when he was first cast, and they actually do look very similar. They so do. that was a great casting. And also, Ellie Darcy Alden will play young Lily Evans. And the article that we got this from also mentioned that Rohan go to bed. <laughs> Uh, was interesting last name. Good uh, was cast as a young Sirius Black, so they will be doing those flashback scenes. Oh, good uh, from uh, part two. So, I'm sure, everybody is uh, looking forward to that. That's going to be cool. What other Deathly Hollows news is going on? There's news on the music front, Andrew. Oh, yeah, uh, Conrad Pope, uh, a composer who is apparently working. Uh, with Alexander Desplat for the score of Deathly Hallows Part 1, updated his Facebook profile. We get news from everywhere uh, with, with, the, <laughs> with the following information. Just finished the first week with the LSO of recording Alexander Desplat's score for HP7. Harry Potter now occupies a new musical universe. For Lovegood AD has written a charming, groovin' theme. Dobby 2 is given a new voice. The emotional music reaches its climax in Ron's speech in the wilderness where the poetry of A.D. conveys the emotion in a single chord's voicing. Stay tuned. Wow. wow. Sounds very technical. Yeah. Well, I think A.D. stands for Alexander Desplat. Or no. Oh, right. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. He's trying to get creative there and he was not fooling me. Yeah. So, so Dobby has a new voice. That's interesting. Like not not literally a voice, but his new his his tune, so to speak. Does he sound like a mouse or something? No, no, he's saying voice like the background music for him, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, interesting. And uh, also, we got a release date uh, for the score, November the sixteenth. The soundtrack will go on sale, so pre-order, Andrew. I wonder what Dobby's old voice was. Like, what was his old score? I don't remember that. I may have to watch Chamber of Secrets too. Refresh my mind. You just might. Uh, the last piece of Deathly Hallows news was Nick Moran, uh, the actor who's going to play Scabior, the Snatcher, which is a, a new character, not in the book. Um, he revealed in an interview that some scenes were cut because they were too gory. And uh, the quote was, The scenes I did were really, really dark, really, really dark. But when I went to see them, they cut some of the worst bits out. And I was talking to producer David Heyman saying, Oh no, why is that gone? He said, Apparently, it was like watching Saw. <laughs> uh, I don't believe it was that bad. Yeah, they say this. They so. say this every time. They're always like, Oh, this scene was really dark, so we had to cut it because it was just, it was too violent. And I'm like, Yeah. It's the darkest one yet. Yeah, exactly. 
<laughs> well, it would have been interesting to ask Eric about that, though, I think, because he's seen the movie, um, but apparently they cut those scenes out anyway, so it wouldn't have made much of a difference. Yeah, well, Eric's not here, so that doesn't make much of a difference either. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, in terms of darkness, we have a email I was going to say for Muggle Mail, but I, I, I'd like to do it now since it's sort of the same topic, and I really want to get Laura, Laura's take. Um, it comes from Sam, 19 of Toronto. He writes, Hi guys, after listening to episode 209 and watching the trailer myself, I was a bit concerned with the fact that the movie will have scenes that are strongly rep- reminiscent of the Holocaust. While I do agree that parts of the book reminded me of this, I am not sure how appropriate it is to have such blatant similarities, such as the red armbands those ministry officials wear. Many people are likely to get offended by this. I was wondering what your guys' opinion on the matter is. Now, Laura, did you see the part one trailer? Yeah, and it, I don't know if you caught it, but during the Ministry of Magic scenes, uh, when you see you see shots of the Ministry, there are Ministry officials wearing red armbands, and it, it you know it, it was it was very apparent what it was and what it was resembling. What's your take on that? Is that do you think that's appropriate? Uh, I mean, I don't know. I think you're gonna see this kind of reflection in any film that deals with like the war scenario. I mean, in Order of the Phoenix, for instance, you remember the big black and white poster they had of Fudge? Yeah. That was very reminiscent of Stalin. Yeah. So, I don't know. I mean, I guess it goes both ways. And I think it's one of those things where um, if you're looking for something like that, you're going to find it. But you can also look at these movies and these books and dig out a number of other <laughs> references, you know, to dictatorships and wars and messed up societies. So I don't know. Yeah. Obviously, I think World War II is more prevalent because it's the one that people are most familiar with, especially due to the Holocaust. Um, but I don't know. I mean, these sorts of things happen with corrupt people. They come up with silly armbands and they take, you know, symbols that were originally from Asian culture that meant peace and then turn them on their side and then you have the swastika. So <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I, I I think it's I think it is okay for them to have it in the film. I think it really connects the wizarding world to the real world. And it makes you realize, you know, what it was like. Um yeah. so I, I think I think it's okay. I think definitely uh, it's a way for David Yates to be able to make the connection a lot stronger, as you were saying, Andrew. I, I, I think there's nothing wrong with it. Uh, I think he wants to drive home the point that you know the ministry is corrupt and it's in absolute power, and the best way to do that is to draw the parallel to Nazi Germany. All right, well, let's continue with the news. Okay, uh, we... Got some clips from the Ultimate Editions of Prisoner of Azkaban and Goblet of Fire. And the first was Creating the World of Harry Potter Documentary. Um, and it focused on part three, which is Creatures. And in that particular scene, crew members discuss how they design goblins. It also features some great never-before-seen never before seen concept art. And uh, I took a look at the clip earlier. Um, you know, Andrew, you have both of the Ultimate Editions for Sorcerer's Stone and Chamber of Secrets? That's right, Micah. That's you right. do? Okay. No, because, I, I mean, this is the reason why you go out and buy them, right? I mean, more or less. Yeah, th- this is the best. The, this, uh, for anyone who doesn't know, 
the Ultimate Editions, they released the Sorcerer's Stone and Chamber of Secrets Ultimate Editions last year. They are releasing the Prisoner of Azkaban and Goblet of Fire Ultimate Editions this year. And the special thing about these Ultimate Editions is that they have one part of a eight-part documentary looking looking at everything in the Harry Potter fandom, and or in the Harry Potter universe, uh, the creation of the creatures, like Micah mentioned, uh, finding the stars composing the scores uh there's going to be one part on the harry potter fandom i think on the half prince uh, or uh uh deathly hollows part one documentary so it's are you, really are you cool. featured in that fandom piece uh yeah i made that whole oh, thing you did oh, okay. i made that whole part yeah andrew made the no. fandom didn't you know that Micah? <laughs> <laughs> you know what actually i really hope that warner brothers approaches the fan sites about that because how could you not include the fan sites in a whole thing about the Harry Potter fandom. That's true. No, you raise a good point. Be oh. ridiculous. I, what else are they going to talk about? They could talk about the fans turning out to the premieres and the book releases. But anyway, so the best part about these Ultimate Editions is the documentary. Because when it's all said and done, we're going to have this beautiful eight, eight, nine-hour documentary looking at everything the Harry Potter franchise has created. So it, it's really special. And the packaging... The, you get little, you get a little booklet with each one too that has some really nice concept art and stills. So it's really cool. And I can't wait to have the entire set. It's gonna, it's gonna be great. Yeah. So go to the site, check out the clips. As you mentioned, uh, the one from Goblet of Fire is on the music and the, the composing side of things. And, uh, the one from Prisoner of Azkaban, as we talked about, has the goblins and also, uh, how they went about designing the dementors and uh, both of them are on sale october 19th so this yes. month and we may or may not be running a, a promotion to give away ultimate edition dvds can i enter to win no sorry mm. you you are a mugglet staffer therefore you are prohibited from entering the contest oh. but uh <laughs> it will be a great contest we did it before with the last two uh ultimate editions uh, we also gave away a blu-ray player so, and we will be doing that again. So Sweet. Blu-ray is the way to go, by the way, uh, especially for the Harry Potter films. They look great. Yep. All right. Final bit of news. We touched on it briefly in the live show, but we didn't have too much time to talk about it. Uh, apparently, the Wizarding World could expand within the next 12 months. Well, I see, I don't think they're actually going to do it oh. in the next 12 months, but... They sent out a survey to people who have visited the park, and they said, what if, instead of expanding it, we doubled the size of the Wizarding World of Harry Potter? How likely would you be to visit the Wizarding World of Harry Potter again within the next 12 months to visit a Wizarding World of Harry Potter that was twice as big, with twice as much as everything? So you feel, you select very likely, likely, somewhat likely, not very likely, and not at all likely. And uh, it's very interesting. I mean, what this says is, yeah, they are. They don't want to just expand it. They want to double it. They want to see if doubling it would get everyone back to the park. That's and awesome. I hope, yeah. And I hope many people selected very likely. Because as long as we don't have to watch another freaking promotional video that's an hour long before we can get in. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, that was before the uh, little party in the park, Laura. Not not everyone has. To do yeah. That, you know? Yeah. Okay. You know. You know very well that if they do this, we're gonna end up having another one of those night in the park events. I. <laughs> yes. You know what? I'm already there, Universal. I don't need you to sell it to me. 
Thanks. <laughs> well, uh, yeah. So um, it's it's exciting. I hope they do. I don't think it'll happen within a year. I think maybe two years. But even that's even that's pushing it. I think. And uh, just kind of a follow up on the story. I think we did it on episode two hundred eight of the the gentleman who couldn't ride the forbidden journey because um, uh, of a weight problem. Yeah, we talked about that on the last episode. Yeah, but apparently they they fixed some of the seats so that now oh right you can go and you can ride um, for people who might be have a little bit more weight on yeah. them. Yeah, uh, have different body dimensions. What was previous? Uh, they have a whole lighting system in place now, um, so it'll tell you if you're too big for the regular seats. You have to sit. In one of the 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 larger seats, so to speak, and it's just so terrible, though. I mean, you'd think that they would make this ride so that everybody can ride it. You know, the fact that we're even having this discussion um, is a little bit. Yeah, I mean, unsettling. it can get complicated, though. I mean, designing these rides, I'm sure. You know, at least they added a seat that lets more people ride it. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Well, I was also reading about that as well. And what Mike is describing is it's like a green, a yellow, and a red light. It's like if you get a green light, you can sit in any seat. If you get a yellow light, you have to sit in a modified seat. And if you get a red one, you still can't ride. Like, can you imagine being the person who still gets a red light? Like, oh, that gosh, would suck yeah. so yeah, bad. I would be good. devastated. Yeah, that's not good. But there you go. So that's all the news, that Micah. That is all the news I have. All right. Well, uh, don't don't uh, sit back, kick back just yet. It's time now for chapter by chapter, and you are guiding us through the first. Oh, that's chapter. right. I didn't even notice. Chapter ten: <laughs> Mayhem at the Ministry. All right. Well, everybody remember that when we last left off, uh, they were at the Quidditch World Cup. The Death Eaters had their little fun by hanging muggles uh, in the air. And uh, now everybody is returning back uh, to their homes and the Weasleys return to the burrow. And the first people that Mrs. Weasley goes for are Fred and George. And remember on 208, we had this whole discussion about why doesn't Mrs. Weasley just leave the two of them alone, give them their space to plan their joke shop and stop being so hard on them. And, uh, it's, it's interesting that, you know, she says, Oh, I can't believe, uh, you know, the last thing that I did was essentially yell at you guys. And here you go off to the Quidditch world cup and you almost get killed. Um, so it seems like events like that always change people's perspectives on, silly situations yep she'll be regretting that one in three years out <laughs> <laughs> do you think do you think mrs weasley had like a major change of heart after this you know now that now that her worst fear had had almost come to uh fruition like it sort of made her realize like yeah. oh man i should stop treating them this way what if i do lose them because we are at war yeah well it's interesting because later on in the chapter fred and george continue to play it up like every time Mrs. Weasley might have the opportunity to reprimand them for something, they say, oh, well, you know, what if we go off to Hogwarts and the train crashes and we both die? Think about the last <laughs> thing you'll have said to us, you know? So, that was pretty funny. Uh, yeah, they, they're definitely taking advantage of it. So, um, but uh, we learn in this chapter about um, 
one of our favorite characters, Rita Skeeter. We get our first introduction to her uh, because she writes a terrible account of what happened at the Quidditch World Cup. And uh, Percy, in particular, calls her a terrible woman. And uh, I, I don't remember exactly, but I think his attitude towards her does change a bit uh, as we move towards Order of the Phoenix and she starts writing all those things about Harry and Dumbledore. So uh, it was interesting how when she was attacking the Ministry, Percy thinks she's a terrible woman, but as the books progress and uh, she is supportive of the Ministry and against Dumbledore, he begins to take her side. Yeah, and and Rita's intro was actually kind of um, it was kind of quick. It, it it wasn't a typical character intro like one we're gonna get a little later on with Mad Eye Moody, and we'll talk about that major intro. Uh, when we get there, but Rita's, it sort of just slipped by. There wasn't too much of an introduction. Introduction. We just heard that Rita Skeeter had uh, written the article, and that was it. But of course, we learned more about her later on. Yeah, and J.K. Rowling has a tendency to do that sometimes. Um, yeah, you know, I, I think we talked about that recently, actually. Yeah, she did it with Cho Chang. She did it with uh, Cedric Diggory, um, both um, during Quidditch, and it was kind of just in passing. So. She has this way of introing characters that come into play later on in the series. Now, Arthur Weasley has this little bit of an argument with Molly, and he decides that it's important to put his job above his family, and uh, he spends a lot of time at the ministry over the course of the week that takes place in the chapter. Um, Now, my question was, is he really that valuable to the ministry, or do you think he just feels bad about the statement that he made that Rita used in the paper. You know, because, I mean, he's not that high-ranking of an official. He may be within his department, but as far as the hierarchy of the ministry is concerned, you know, he's not that high up there. So I just wonder if he's doing it more to kind of atone for what he said. Well, I wonder at what point he he doesn't put his job over his family. Like, where's the threshold? Because, you know, you should see your kids off to school. And though, granted, I do I do agree with you, the second part of your question. I think he just felt bad about his statement more than anything. And he explained that in, in this chapter. He said, oh, I feel so bad. It was all my fault. This wouldn't have happened. Now, during this uh, conversation, they all uh, eventually head off. And Harry reveals to Ron and Hermione that he kept his scar hurting from both of them. Um, and he had written to Sirius. Now, I can't remember, but is this the first time he's really kept something big from them and he's chosen to go to Sirius instead? You know, he has sort of that godfather figure now, kind of like a parent. Does he feel more comfortable going to Sirius? Or he just thinks maybe Sirius will understand and not overreact? Well, I I do think it is the first time, Micah. I think you're right about that. And I think also, like, judging based on previous events, like the way we've seen both Ron and Hermione react. I mean, you know, Ron is just typical, you know, flabbergasted and doesn't really offer much input. And Hermione just, you know, flips. So it's sort of probably a combination of him wanting to remain, like retain some amount of normalcy with his friends while at the same time taking advantage of this new father figure he has. Eric is joining us now. Eric, where were you? I know this isn't your political podcast, Andrew, but I feel like I need to take this opportunity to lobby for better infrastructure in Chicago. Maybe it's just me, but I feel like highways 
by definition, are supposed to be able to handle sort of high volumes of traffic. So when it's not even rush hour and cars are bumper to bumper, you know, it's kind of an issue. Well, I'm sorry. I'm sorry you got stuck in a traffic jam, but uh, we had to start without you. We just had to record. I understand. So during this time, uh, we are introduced also to the Weasley's grandfather clock. Um, as Arthur is spending a lot of time at the ministry, um, Harry notices this grandfather clock on the wall. And I think it's the first time that it's described. I, I believe it was mentioned in Chamber of Secrets, but this is the first time we get a full analysis of it. And it kind of tells you what the clock does. It points to all the different members of the Weasley family and what they're doing. And, um, I was wondering who would make something like this, you know, I don't know. It's <laughs> Dumbledore, I think talks about it later on in the series, how much he likes the, uh, the clock in the Weasley's, uh, kitchen area. So, um, I, I don't know. Like it, it, it seems like something cool and useful to have, you know, to know where everybody is and what they're doing. I don't know. It seems sort of big brotherish to me. <laughs> kind of freaks me out. <laughs> yeah, I used to think it was cool, but now I just think it's creepy. Like if you had a well, because... it's limit. It's limited in description. Yeah. So, like, do you think you could like purchase a clock? Like, for instance, if Laura went into the clock shop, I'm sure it's just like some independent clockmaker, and she was like, "Can you make me a Johnny Depp clock? I need to know exactly <laughs> where, where he is <laughs> at all times." Yeah. Do you think they'd be able to do that? I hope so. It might be. I could use that for other people. Oh, no, is this like clock who? in the movie? Yeah, yeah. it's in Chamber, it's in chamber it's in Secrets. Secrets. Yeah, you oh, see their okay. heads and, and their heads sort of react to the uh, to the hands on the clock moving around. They're sort of like looking up and stuff. It was clever. This is actually one of the things I think uh, Microsoft attempted to make in real life. I remember there was a news article about this a really long time ago. In um, addition to the invisibility cloak. Right. I'm going to do a, a quick Google search just to check, but yeah. Uh, it was back in August 2007. Uh, there's an article on boing boing dot, or sorry, back in 2005, uh, at an internal tech fest and Microsoft, they, they tried to make one of these. So, uh, it's a good memory. It's It's one of the, it's one of the cooler, uh, items in the Harry Potter world, I think. I'll be creepy. Yeah. Definitely. It's like Twitter status update for wizards. (laughs) Uh, Eric, you, uh, put the next point in here, um, one of the things that Arthur shares uh, with the family is all the howler trouble that the ministry is having. And uh, you pointed out that howlers are one of those things they probably wish they hadn't invented, uh, but not enough to do anything about it. Uh, couldn't they stop them somehow? Um, the reason yeah, we bring this I'm... up, though, is the ministry is being bombarded with howlers after the uh, the Quidditch World Cup. Um and uh, you also asked how many wizards are requesting ministry compensation for possessions that were lost. Um, but I isn't that sort of like yeah. saying in the real in in our world in the Muggle world, you know, can't why don't politicians just figure out a way to stop uh, political smear campaigns? Like this is just one of those things you have to deal with in the world. There are these magical items called howlers, and the ministry can't keep them out. I mean, maybe they were designed to get anywhere to serve this exact purpose because <laughs> you want to make sure this person is getting your message. And if the so howlers as them, pioneers of free speech. Right. Yeah, it's free speech and it's getting your message where it belongs. <laughs> yeah. I never thought of it like that. So it's like a protest, sort of. 
Uh, you don't have to go yeah. out and protest. You just send howler, howlers. The uh, the compensation yeah. for possessions thing is interesting, though. I wonder what would have happened here if everybody affected by Katrina went to our president and asked to be compensated for their lost possessions. Weren't they? They get some money. Yeah, but they were nowhere near compensated. Percy is going on about this and how people are trying to defraud the ministry into replacing their items supposedly lost at the Quidditch World Cup fiasco. And that's what this whole chapter is about, is this whole fiasco and how the ministry deals with it. But I thought it was interesting, and obviously it's slightly humorous, but Percy is, is, is ranting here about people who are submitting false reports. Yeah, especially uh, Mundungus Fletcher, which you pointed out. <laughs> the the uh, 12-bedroom tent with ensuite jacuzzi. <laughs> but Percy knows for a fact that he was sleeping under a cloak propped on sticks. This is this is J.K. Rowling when, when I mean, it, it's it's just so enjoyable. Reading this. And that happens all the time in the real world, too, I'm sure. <laughs> People try to get more than they actually lost. Yeah, exactly. Um, and th- what happens during this uh, this conversation one uh, that they're having at dinner is uh, we get our first look at Percy starting to side with the ministry over his family. And he says, well, father feels he's got to make up for his mistake at the match, doesn't he? If truth be told, he was a tad unwise to make a public statement without clearing it with his head of department first. And uh, Mrs. Weasley, you know, yells at him for making that statement. Don't talk about your father that way. Um, but we s- see the development already of uh, of Percy. And uh, this has sort of been think? building up, too, hasn't it? I yeah. mean, we, we've seen Percy speak so highly of the ministry, and so he really stands for it. And then now that he sees, you know, his family being being mad that the ministry is causing essential essentially the ministry causing his family to uh, lose their uh, dad for the day, it it's it's frustrating that they feel frustrated at the ministry. Right. So there's my convoluted sentence, but no, my I point is. Saying. My point is, he's trying to defend the ministry because he loves him so much. He's been saying it this whole book so far. Yeah, and uh, the, the this is all happening at dinner before Arthur arrives. And uh, I thought it was ironic that Molly says that Arthur hadn't spent this much time at the ministry since the days of you know who. And my comment was, "Well, guess what, Molly? <laughs> he's back. <laughs> yeah, he's back. Exactly. Well." I mean, uh, it's it's a little bit uh, ironic, I thought, that she would say that. Um, but when Arthur does finally arrive home, we learn that Rita Skeeter has found out about Bertha Jorkins, that she has gone missing. And uh, I don't know how some big piece of information like that gets leaked, um, but uh, I guess it's just one of those examples of the press getting hold of information that they shouldn't have. And uh, Arthur uh, also mentions Winky, during uh, the conversation, and this sets off a huge argument, and uh, you see the beginnings of spew in some of the statements that Hermione makes, um, because she stands up a lot for Winky uh, throughout the course of the conversation. Did you guys notice that? Yeah, yeah, and it's a, it's really, and this is one of the first times we see Hermione being a true leader. I mean, there's other examples in the other books, but this is really one of her most ambitious projects yet. Or at least it will be later in this book. Yeah, and then just going back to Percy for a second, though, I mean, it's interesting that he'll defend the ministry, even though the minister, um, or sorry, uh, Barty Crouch Sr., can't even remember his name. 
you know, it just goes to show you how dense of a character he is. Um, well, and how much he loves the ministry. He's just delusional about it. Someone had sent in an interesting question, though, about this. Though, Do you think Barty Crouch Sr. couldn't remember Percy's name because he was already under the Imperius curse? Oh, yeah. Maybe That's that was a possibly. little hint. Possible. So after all this uh, arguments take place, uh, they go upstairs to pack for school. And uh, Ron finds uh, that he has some secondhand clothing from... Uh, I don't know, the uh, Salvation Army of Wizards, and uh, that he's going to have to be wearing formal attire at some point this year. And uh, you really see how bothered by all this Ron is, because Harry, of course, has these brand-new, better-looking formal uh, clothes to uh, to take to school. And you know it's a money issue. And, um, you know, don't you think Mrs. Weasley could be a little bit more... Um, you know what I'm saying? You know, she knows that by, by doing these types of things or buying something along those lines that it, it sets Ron up for being Bling. made fun of. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but this is the family. I mean, the family just can't afford it. You know, if she listened to you and decided to buy him new robes and the family couldn't eat for a week. Plus, so. why couldn't she fix what? What? Well, I was going to go to the the tweet that somebody uh, sent in. T. Starkey wrote, Why can't Mrs. Weasley just fix Ron's ugly dress robes? She's like the queen of all things domestic. (laughs) I'm sure she can make the needle and thread sew themselves. (laughs) Well, because then Draco couldn't make fun of Ron later on in the book. Everything happens for a reason. Queen of all things domestic. I'm going to use that in in, in something. It's it's a very, very nice way of saying that she's a stay-at-home mom. And Harry mentions here he wishes he could give the Weasleys half his fortune, but they just wouldn't accept it. I mean, maybe, you know, just give Ron some money under the table <laughs> and uh, buy some stuff on his own at Diagon Alley. Worked for the Weasley twins. Yeah. yeah. Plus, Ron is Harry Potter's friend. What What has he possibly got to be sad about? <laughs> He's friends with Harry Potter. Yeah. Um, and the other thing that uh, we could bring up was Low Giants 55 wrote in, and asked, uh, how can the Weasleys get gold out of Harry's vault? It's always bothered me. It's like uh, any other bank account. You can put another account holder on there who can access the the money. Yeah, maybe, I guess that's maybe, probably what Harry maybe, did. Yeah. yeah. All right, and that wraps up Chapter 10, Andrew. Okay, now it's time for Chapter 11, Aboard the Hogwarts Express. This is always one of the chapters I look forward to the most, because, you know, heading back to school for another year, at least in the first six books. So, Harry, for the first time, sees what it's like to communicate with someone via fireplace. This was right at the beginning. Uh, uh, They're talking to uh, Amos Diggory, and um, we see here that Mrs. Weasley is even able to feed Amos a piece of toast through the fire. And I had forgotten this happened because, you know, in, in the in the movie, you just see Harry talking to Sirius through the through the fireplace. So I just I just thought, imagine all the possibilities you can do. You can transfer items through a fireplace uh, diseases, you know, without without flu powder. And Eric suggested you could even do something else very inappropriate that I won't mention on this show. But I think through you're a right. fireplace. 
Yeah, there's all these things you can do through the fireplace, well, including feeding man, people. Man, that just eliminates the problem of the long-distance relationship. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's it's also Laura. It's it's also pretty hot, wouldn't you say? Ah, <laughs> Eric. <laughs> hey, Laura, I'll meet you at our respective fireplaces tonight. You don't want the ministry watching though, because don't they monitor the network? Oh, right, darn it! Oh, don't tell me you don't want somebody watching. Come on, adds to the fun, Micah. So I just thought I just thought that was kind of funny that you could feed toast and probably so much more through the fireplace. <laughs> oh, God. Sorry. So, but I wonder, you know, why couldn't humans just transfer their bodies through it? Does it, is it just because somehow the face makes that open connection? And then. In the movie, I mean, you can transfer bodies through. That's how the flu network works. But. But is this the flu? Are they talking through the flu network? Doesn't, in one of the movies, doesn't somebody use flu powder just like normal flu powder, but only put their head in? Or actually, that's, um, even in the books, I think, Order of the Phoenix, maybe, um, where it's, it works the same way as the flu network, but instead of putting your whole body through, you just put your head through. I, th- I feel like that's Order of the Phoenix, the book somewhere, where they, they just do that. So, yeah, well, as a result, Harry does that in, in Umbridge's office um, when he's going to try and find Sirius, and he runs into Creature. So, that's how it works. Well, yeah, I mean, that's just one yeah, example. Only- he, does it, um, he does it in this movie, uh, this movie, this book, too, when he talks to Sirius. Well, Sirius talks to him. He doesn't... Does oh, he go through oh, the fireplace oh, yeah, to talk yeah, I to I see his, what you're saying. Yeah, seriously. But that's what I'm saying. So, uh, you know, this is just a thing where Amos Diggory, you know, before he leaves, Molly <laughs> gives him a piece of toast. <laughs> and he says, thanks. And, you know, he's obviously chewing it. So, it, it's just like the regular flu network, only you're not actually leaving. You know, you're still kneeling at home. It's just your head is transferring through the fire. It's magic. Yeah, okay. I, I, I just looked it up quick. Uh, and according to the Harry Potter lexicon... Uh, which and they got this information from Goblet of Fire. You can use the flu network just to speak with another flu connection rather than traveling there. So, yeah. So yes, this is on the flu network. Uh, very good. All right. So that answers my question. You can transfer your body. <laughs> so the gang heads to King's Cross, and Bill drops a few hints about the Tri Wizard tournament, but still doesn't reveal exactly what's going on. And this time it's really bugging. I think it was Ron who said, what, what? Tell us, tell us already. And while on the Hogwarts Express, Harry, while um, overhearing a conversation that Draco is having, learns that Durmstrang, uh, learns about Durmstrang for the first time. And of course, we'll be learning much more about them throughout this book, thanks to the Triwizard Tournament. As the uh, trio continue talking about Durmstrang on their own, Hermione reveals that Hogwarts cannot be seen by outsiders. It just looks like an old ruin with a sign that says, Danger, do not enter, unsafe. I'm wondering, what if someone does try to get in? What what happens? Does it push you away? <sighs> yeah, I wonder what kind of ruin it is. Like, is it a ruin that is exactly shaped, same walls and yeah, everything as exactly. Hogwarts. Because that's a pretty impressive ruin, you know? Right. Or if it's just if it's just a sign like then again, if if there is such a thing as being unplottable, it's it's very possible that, you know, you you're you, you walk up to the cliff and you're actually nowhere near Hogwarts, so Yeah, I mean that's sort know. of what I'm thinking. if it Hogwarts is unplottable, like Hermione says. So I wonder if you see the old ruin and if you approach it, maybe you can walk into it, but it's not Hogwarts. It's just the old ruin. I don't know. We don't know for sure. Yeah. 
What was the one with the appointment? That was the Quidditch World Cup? That was the, yeah, that was specifically the Quidditch World Cup. She, so Hermione, having read Hogwarts of History, did not make that same connection about Hogwarts, but she said maybe it's like the Quidditch World Cup, where you do remember uh, that you've forgotten something important. Mm. Yeah, that could be. I'm sure, I'm sure Dumbledore has the right protections in place. I mean, that's for sure. So, moving along, um, where was I? Draco comes in and asks Harry and Ron if they'll compete. But they don't know what he's talking about. This was the same thing Bill was hinting at. So, Draco makes fun of Arthur and Percy's inability to get secret big information because Draco just assumed that Arthur and Percy didn't even know when, in fact, that pretty much the entire Weasley family <laughs> knew about it, uh, except for the trio. Uh, and, if, well... Uh, all the Hogwarts students didn't know about it in the Weasley family, of course. So this makes Ron push Draco out. And um, Eric, do you want to just go ahead and take this point? Yeah, when they walk on Draco earlier on the train, he's talking about his dad knowing Karkaroff. And he's bragging about, you know, the event. And then when he comes in and taunts Harry and Ron and Hermione about it, he talks about his father, you know, knowing about it weeks and weeks and months ago. Um, he's, he says particularly that uh, Cornelius Fudge himself told Lucius Malfoy about the Triwizard Tournament. Uh, obviously, he doesn't mention what it is to them, but he says that Fudge himself told Lucius. So this is, I felt like this was setting Lucius Malfoy up because, you know, he he's, we, we find out about Durmstrang in this chapter, and Durmstrang is this school where they practice dark arts, and then the headmaster at this dark arts heavy school is good friends with Lucius Malfoy. And it, it's it's just setting up. Obviously, we know that Karkaroff was formerly a Death Eater, um, has the dark mark, and uh, so Lucius and Karkaroff are probably, you know, BFFs. And we have a tweet here related to this topic. B Daily Two writes: Doesn't it seem like a little foreshadowing to Voldy's return when Malfoy talks so openly about wanting to practice dark arts on the train? Um, I, I mean, I don't know if it's foreshadowing though. It. Because now they don't even know that Voldemort is back. Even Lucius doesn't know that. Um, you know, he was just as shocked to see the dark mark at the Quidditch World Cup as anybody else. We learn that later on. I mean, all the Death Eaters were were scared because none of them had conjured it up. So I don't think it was necessarily foreshadowing because even then. Draco has no idea that that Voldemort is is back. Yeah, it's more like it's more like setup and payoff. You know, in year four, Malfoy's on the train complaining about how he can't do more dark arts, and then in movie six, Malfoy is inducted as a Death Eater into Voldemort's you know inner circle, and he's thinking the exact opposite. It's ironic. Yeah, he's ready really. to wet his pants while he's on the train. Yeah, so he's so scared. I mean, it could just be the journey. It's a long journey. On the train. To wrap up this chapter, right before they arrive at a rainy Hogwarts, Eric, in all his inappropriateness, uh, put down this quote. Ron's bad mood continued for the rest of the train journey. He didn't even speak much while they were changing into their robes. Isn't this because he can see Hermione's under things? Right, Eric. Oh, Eric. You wished you were Ron. She says they she says they change into their robes, you know, whatever. It was funny. And chapter 12, Eric, it's all you. You made it just in time. Chapter 12, the Tri-Wizard Tournament. All right, so the trio encounter their worst trip to Hogwarts is rainy. Rainy, rainy, rainy. Ron says the lake might overflow. But regardless, first-year students are still crossing the lake 
to get to the school. Harry remarks about this. He asks Hagrid about it. Hagrid's like, oh, it's going to be a big one. All that stuff. So, isn't this a safety hazard? I- I'm telling you, I mean, these these first years, and you see them later, they show up in the Great Hall, and, like, Dennis Creevy, like, is in is under Hagrid's coat. He fell in the lake. You know, couldn't they have... Uh, surely there's room, or there could be room in the carriages, you know, that take the rest of the students up. I, I-, I feel like the storm is a, is a little dangerous. Uh... Do they not care but about? But it's a their- rite of passage. Exactly, it's a tradition. They wouldn't. They wouldn't want to go through their years at Hogwarts knowing that their first year they didn't do what everyone else did, take the boats up. It's very, it's very beautiful and kind of eerie, sort not of like, like we saw in the first movie. Well, right, but I'm, my uh, my point that is, makes it all the more special. Depends on the storm. I would argue. Special. I mean, if it's if it's cloudy, and what about on a foggy, you know, first day at Hogwarts? Foggy September first. Oh, that would be nice too. Maybe I don't know the. The climate. Maybe it's never foggy on September first. Oh, they should have had umbrellas or something. That's that's what it, <laughs> it comes just, down to. It just just seemed pretty dangerous. So that's that's all I had to say about that. Um, they they end up. Th- well, I'm glad no one died. Actually, I was gonna send you a song to play anyway, just in case in in the in the rare event that there was a, a first year who was unaccounted for. And uh, and speaking of well, Eric, speaking of songs, uh, last or on episode two hundred eight, we played a song because you thought Muggles died. But we got a lot of emails from people saying Muggles actually didn't die. You dropped the ball there, buddy. I, I just like music. If anybody has a problem with that, they can send uh, an email to eric at staff.mugglenet.com. Or, yeah, but uh, a lot of people you know, got emotional, myself included, thinking that innocent <laughs> Muggles had died well, during the... Actually, um, if you go back World and Cup. if you listen to the episode, and this is not me weaseling out of you, if you go back to the episode, I it was actually more of a tribute song to all Muggles who had been tortured and killed by uh, Death Eaters, by Voldemort's followers. Uh, so- oh, like ever? Yeah, yeah, like ever, and I'm pretty sure that the <laughs> the wordage that you that is in the because I was I was very uh, aware of that, and uh, I want to say that that the wordage that is in the show should should support that. So, um, it, it, but I mean, like you know, as we were going over in that chapter by chapter, it's it was pretty uh, horrific what you know had been done to that Muggle family. So I feel like it still warranted a ballroom blitz song by Sweep. Um, Anyway, well, nice try. Yeah, thanks. But well, before we continue, Laura has to leave now. Laura, um, we'll try to plan better in the future so we can have you on for an entire episode. Yeah, let, let's try not to make this into a pattern. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all, right, all right. Well, thanks for joining us, Laura. Good luck on your school stuff. Thank you. See you guys later. All right. Bye. Bye. So they traipse through the rain. They get up into the Great Hall, um, dodging water balloons by Peeves. And they're in the Great Hall, and. Um, you know, they're at the feast, and nearly headless Nick is sitting among the Gryffindors. And he is described as being dressed tonight in his usual doublet, but with a particularly large ruff, which served the dual purpose of looking extra festive and ensure that his head did not wobble too much on his partially severed neck. So, J.K.R. is saying he was dressed usually except for this particularly large ruff. Can ghosts change clothes? Well, that this seems to prove it, doesn't it? It would seem like she's saying that he's changed his clothes, that he's, you know, he's wearing his usual except for this large ruff. So even the clothes are ghostly, you're saying? Well, I'm, I'm like- saying he's got like a ghostly wardrobe somewhere, you know, like maybe ghostly designer clothing stores, uh, you know, s- wow. sell to. Well, didn't he wear something different on his death day party, too? That's a good question, but it was it was a while ago. I, I don't remember. 
I yeah. I mean, the headless. Yeah, hunt, I mean, I guess that is a little factoid that that it's kind of a factoid that. Uh, I, yeah, I thought it was interesting because I didn't really remember that being in the books being mentioned, but um, but yeah, probably during the death day party because you want to assume that the members of the headless hunt don't always wear their horses. Um, okay, so next point is I. Um, <laughs> It's actually a really sentimental um, story that I wanted to share because a lot of people don't know this actual fact of the books. Um, there's a quote from Nearly Had This Nick again. He says, I do hope this year's batch of Gryffindors are up to scratch. And he is applauding as um, McDonald Natalie joined the Gryffindor table. And in real life, I want to share this, artic- uh, share this article in the show notes, but in real life, uh, the student... Um, Natalie McDonald was actually a, a, a nine-year-old Harry Potter fan um, who passed away of leukemia. And her mother had written to J.K. Rowling, um, you know, just about Natalie, about how big of a, a Harry Potter fan she was. Um, and J.K. Rowling got the letter but wasn't able to respond to it um, before Natalie had passed away. And uh, the result was, I think it was like the day after she passed away, that J.K. Rowling um, had really, really, uh, you know, tried to get it. Um, a response to her letter in time, but didn't. And the uh, Natalie's mother and J.K. Rowling continued a friendship, um, which lasted, you, you know, years after. And actually, it's it's just a wonderful article. I can't do it justice here. Um, it was written in Maclean's, uh, which I believe is a, a, um, a magazine um, in Canada. But anyway, um, Accio Quote, which is a wonderful archive of J.K. Rowling interviews and newspaper articles and all that, is uh, I, I included a link in the show notes and. I think uh, so. In honor of Natalie, yeah, basically Joe decided to include her as a Hogwarts student, as a Gryffindor, which is really cool for being, you know, for for bravery because she braved the illness. Yeah, that's great so. and heartbreaking that Natalie couldn't finish reading the entire series. Yeah, I actually heard that uh, J.K. Rowling was looking to send her a copy of Goblet of Fire so that um, she could uh, read what. Uh, what happened before anybody else according to this article um it actually she actually in her letter in her response letter which arrived the day after natalie passed away was uh the secrets of what what would happen in book four. Oh, oh wow um, well, that's very nice of her so yeah it was it was it was quite special and then um uh natalie's mom kept that letter and kept it out of the press until you know far after the story had been written. So, oh, okay. so yeah, basically cool. this, this student who is, you know, it's a flyaway line, um, you know, nearly had this Nick says, I hope these Gryffindors this year are up to scratch. But, uh, actually that, that Natalie McDonald was, was a real life person. And according to this article, again, is, is the only, you know, real life person that is, that is, um, named in, in, in the books as, as being a fictional one. So that's JK Rowling's cool. tribute to a fan. It's, it's a really nice gesture. And because Joe's going to be on Oprah tomorrow, I feel like it's important to reflect on. On Joe's good deeds. So, at, at, at any rate, um, <clears throat> I mentioned they dodged uh, water balloons coming in that Peeves was throwing, and we didn't really know what was up with him. He was just being, you know, adding insult to injury, I guess, with with the wetness. Ron was really upset. Nearly headless Nick reveals that Peeves had wanted to attend the feast in the Great Hall, but by way of a vote from the Ghosts Council, he was vetoed. Now, I don't know. This struck me as interesting because I'm wondering 
what this ghost council was. You know, nearly had this Nick says that the fat friar was all for letting peeves into the Great Hall during the feast. But uh, the bloody baron put his foot down. <laughs> he put his bloody stump down. So I guess Dumbledore just lets the ghosts decide, like, ghost matters on their own? Like, uh, this is the first mention of this this ghost council that, that was really interesting to me. What What do you guys think? Well, I think they sort of live in their own world in Hogwarts. And Dumbledore can trust them. He, They're obviously mature adults. <laughs> so um, I think, yeah, I, I like this idea of the the group of ghosts that gets together and sort of the, the council uh, that make decisions based on a vote. I think that's, I think that's a clever idea for them to manage their uh, issues, ghostly issues. Yeah. I, I just think of it like a ghost game show with like the gray lady and the bloody baron on like a dating show because of their history together. But maybe that's just me. The newlywed game. <laughs> Contestant number three. Would you kill my sister? To get at my heart? <laughs> no, what happened? I'm sorry. Let's uh, detracting, detracting. Back to the chapter. Next item. Next item. <laughs> There's this funny exchange. Okay, because Nick is is talking about something else. Oh, yeah, Peeves as a, okay. So as a result of being denied, Peeves goes and terrorizes the house elves in the kitchen, and Hermione just like drops her plate or drops her pumpkin juice actually, and uh, stains the white tablecloth orange, and she says. There are house elves here at Hogwarts? And Nick is like, mm-hmm, over a hundred. And, and she's like, uh, wait, I've never seen one. And he says, that's the good, mar- that's the mark of a good house elf, isn't it? That you don't know it's there. <laughs> and Hermione <laughs> stared at him. This is where I, this is where I think Hermione starts to push it because at least they're in a good environment. That isn't like, say, the Malfoys. You know, Dumbledore isn't treating the house elves poorly. Yeah. Uh, they're in a nice work environment, I'm sure. At least nice by house elf standards. Well, Hermione's, and Hermione doesn't think it's a nice environment because she asked Nick, do they get sick leaves and pensions? And No, but that's what, uh, but I'm saying Hermione should at least be happy that it's a good environment, that it's Hogwarts. Well, yeah, right. It, but a- according to, <laughs> I feel like Hermione thinks that it's, you know, she, she, she's a slave labor. She protests. She doesn't need any more food that night, despite Ron, like, wafting smells of spotted dick at her. But regardless, that's what it is. It's in the book. Don't, don't think I'm being in- incorrect. Um, no, I know. I'm not denying what you're saying. I, I just disagree with. Well, she thinks uh, she thinks Hermione. that because they don't get sick leaves and pensions, that it's still slave labor, even though. And that's a complete muggle thing to say, by the way, too. Sick leaves and pensions. <laughs> I mean, do they even exist in the wizarding world? Sick leaves. Uh. Sick leave, maybe pensions. I don't know. Like, does Arthur have a pension from working at the ministry? Why wouldn't he? I don't know, but. Anyway, go ahead. Nick chortled so much that his ruff slipped off his head and fell off. So so he put on this extra ruff that's not normally part of his ghostly costume and his head fell off anyway. But he says uh he says, Yeah, they don't want sick leaves and pensions and, and but but his words are lost on Hermione who who puts down her plate. So Yeah, I, I agree with you, Andrew. I mean, it's a positive environment and as we meet them later in the book, they're really happy to be at the kitchens. Like only Dobby in fact they think Dobby is really weird for going about his business like he is. So anyway, um so they finish their feast and actually Dumbledore has some announcements and uh the sky lights up, there's lightning and they meet or are introduced to who they think is Mad-Eye Moody. 
And this is an interesting descriptor here. Um, I'm going to quote this uh, from the book. The lightning had thrown the man's face into sharp relief, and it was a face unlike any Harry had ever, uh, had ever seen. It looked as though it had been carved out of weathered wood by somebody who had only the vaguest idea of what human faces are supposed to look like, and was none too skilled with a chisel. Every inch of skin seemed to be scarred, the mouth looked like a diagonal gash, and a large chunk of the nose was missing, but it was the man's eyes that made him frightening. And my question to you guys is, where can you get writers like J.K.R.? Because this is, this is, this to me just signified how darn awesome she is. Well, what really stood out to me about this introduction is that it's a solid six paragraphs, and these are big paragraphs. I, I, I cannot remember, and there may be other times, but this is a big intro for one specific character. And that just really surprised me because, you know, it's six paragraphs of, of you not knowing who this is. Until Dumbledore says, may I introduce to you our new Defense Against the Dark Arts professor. I just thought that was interesting. I'm not, uh, I don't think there's really anything to it, but six paragraphs. Whoa. It's kind of ironic, too, because this is the, you know, it's not, there wouldn't be six paragraphs of description if, if Barty Crouch Jr. didn't pull a good Moody. You know what I'm saying? So this is the character that might have the longest introduction in most descriptions, but he's not who we think he is. So a lot of it is actually just false because it's not Mad Eye Moody at all. You know what I'm saying? No, that's a good so point. So maybe she yeah. put extra effort into it, even though you know it's not him. So that yeah, that's very very interesting. He's he's definitely an important you know character and and but this intro yeah was was absolutely very very descriptive. So um, huge huge yeah six paragraphs. So Dumbledore announces the Triwizard Tournament. Finally, they know what was going on. Um, he says it's between, he says traditionally, it's between the three largest wizard schools in Europe, which is Bobatons, Durmstrang, and Hogwarts, but he calls them the largest wizard schools in Europe, but he doesn't say they're the only wizard schools in Europe, so I feel like there are definitely more, um, I'm sure J.K. Rowling's touched on that, so I won't go further, but, um. Well, and what's mentioned maybe in this chapter is that there are, um, these are the three largest schools in Europe, I think it's said, so... Maybe there are smaller wizarding schools, which I would be very interested in seeing. Like an Italian because wizard school? Yeah, because there's got to be a lot of different dynamics in the smaller wizard schools. I mean, how many houses do they have? Do they have houses? You know, how does it work? Yeah. Be interesting to see. And and plus, like, uh, Bobatons and Durmstrang are really, like, they seem to be, like, extreme I- exaggerations. Like, one is, 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 uh, has a pirate ship that, that, you know, carries its students everywhere and they wear fur capes. You know, it, it's just very, um, and it's, is it Germany? It's not Germany. It's like Bulgaria, isn't it? So, um, because Victor Crumb well, goes yeah, there. Well, yeah, I mean, so. Crumb plays for the Bulgarian Quidditch team. So, uh, I mean, it's, it's not a definite that that's where Durmstrang is, but it's in the general vicinity. I think that's probably a safe bet. So, at any rate, um, I did want to mention this this Triwizard Tournament because I, I thought it was a clever way for J.K. Rowling in, in terms of the books um, to kind of uh, not have the same recurring theme, not get bored with things, because all of the last book, all of Prisoner of Azkaban, we were worried about Sirius Black, and, you know, the, the Hogwarts had all this security, the Dementors, it was a, it was a morbid type of, of state to, to have school in. Um, but this year, in order to sort of make people forget, I feel like the Ministry and, you know, Dumbledore both probably agreed to try and revive this old, 
you know, contest, uh, this old sports, you know, event. And I feel like it was, a, a, you know, largely in a part to, uh, you know, have people forget about the, the terror of last year. And, and, you know, everybody's excited about sports. I know I am. So I thought it was a great sort of way to, to, to detract. There's still security, but it's, it, it's kind of exciting. You know what I'm saying? So it's not. It's interesting, like, even now, how Dumbledore is laying the groundwork um, for unity. Um, and, and I think that's a lot of what this book is about, is building those relationships uh, that come into play later on in the series, uh, whether it's Floor and, uh, you know, her obvious relationship uh, with Bill and how that all plays out, or, or Hermione and Crumb and, uh, you know, I was surprised that we didn't really see uh, any more of, of those two schools in the final battle. Uh, but, uh, you know, it, that's Dumbledore's hope, I think, um, you know, by hosting this tournament. Even though, like you said, there's that ministry element of it. You know, Dumbledore knows the value of of having unity all, all of these people together. Yeah, exactly. Well, it begs the question, though, you know, he wants unity, which is which is good, but... What role do they have in the final book? You know, Fleury is relevant as a character because she marries Bill and bothers the heck out of them in, you know, the beginning of movie seven and eventually provides shelter for Harry when he's on the run. But, you know, Fleury is important because she marries into the Weasleys and Crumb isn't necessarily important. I feel like Madame Maxime is probably the second most important character of all of either Bobatons and Durmstrang, and that's because she journeys with Hagrid to go get the to, to, the giants. So, in the end, Bobaton and and maybe I'm completely wrong here, but Bobaton and Durmstrang don't really have that larger role that that we see. I'm sure they do in in you know in the war against Voldemort. And it's it's kind of one of those things where I want to say the story is set in England, so of course we hear about England. Um, we can we right. can you know but- we we can assume that if Voldemort. We took over, you know, England and killed Harry Potter. That that America and South America and Africa w- would all have have you know fallen as well. But you know, I think as far as Harry's story is concerned, uh, Durmstrang and Bobatons don't really, as far as I can see, play a larger role in the later books. Yeah, I mean, the only thing that I can remember is is Crumb and him telling Harry that uh, that symbol that Xenophilius Lovegood was wearing was the mark of Grindelwald. Oh, because Grindelwald went to. Durmstrang. Durmstrang. So, that... But even that, I mean... I, obviously, it's a big plot point, but again, there, there's no fighting. Like, you would expect to have, with all the characters that were in the final battle, have f- figured Crumb would be somewhere in there. I mean, they got a pirate ship. Come on. <laughs> and he's and he's a qui- and he's a Quidditch <laughs> captain. I mean, really. There's this action... Yar, g- we be fighting Valramark. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Are you alright? Yeah. Sacrifices I make for the show. Get some water. Air. <laughs> you're, you're, you're no, my voice. You're sacrificing air. Sacrificing air. I scratch my voice to turn it into I a pirate. Up air. It's not air, it's R. Um, anyway. So, Eric, what else happens in this chapter? <laughs> alright, so, uh, Dumbledore, anyway, he announces the Triwizard Tournament. He talks about the age restriction. He says that he, he's gonna be personally overseeing the security for the age restriction. This really upsets Fred and George, but, 
Anyway, I think this is one of those things where it sets it up so that, you know, to make the readers kind of confused, but it was really easy. And, you know, it turns out it seems like it was really easy just for Moody, Mad-Eye Moody, to put Harry's name in the goblet. Because that's, that's who it was. I mean, it was Barty Crouch Jr. disguised as Moody, went, simply walked through the age restriction because he was old enough, and was able to put Harry's name in, and the goblet didn't have such an age restriction, so... You know, it it obviously it chose Harry because he's he's the chosen one. But it was easy, wasn't it? I mean, to to. I fool. think yeah, I think you you were thinking too much into this. I mean, Dumbledore just meant or what what was meant by it was Dumbledore was going to set up the age line, and no one else was. And and yeah, apparently he thought that age line was secure enough, but apparently not. Yeah, I mean, it'd be secure enough so that Fred and George couldn't <laughs> right you know, hoodwink it. But not for somebody like Mad-Eye Moody. I mean, he's an Auror, and Barty Crouch Jr. is a very experienced uh, person in dark arts. So I think he would be able to figure out how to do that. Between you know his knowledge and adapting Moody's qualities, he would certainly be able to do something like that. I agree. It's kind of one of those things when you hear it in the movie. You know, Moody says when they're all in that trophy room, only somebody who could have, um, you know, conjured a an extremely powerful confundish charm could have done something like this. So, you know, it is, you feel like it's a a little bit of a cheap, uh, escape that, that they went that route, but, Oh, so I don't know. Yeah. In the movie, it's played out more than it is in the, but you know, the book is just to keep people like Fred and George out, but in the movie it's, it's meant to draw even more suspense to Harry being chosen. Yeah. As if there wasn't enough suspense with Michael Gammon throwing Harry around the room, but you know, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> we're going to talk about that eventually on the show. Um, again. So, anyway, I, wa- I wanted to mention you, you talked about Barty Crouch Jr. Now, I feel like he was just a punk kid when he was with the Death Eaters, but, um, now Dumbledore, it also goes to say, you know, Dumbledore trusts his teachers to not, you know, put Harry's name in or put, you know, in danger student. And when Moody first you know, enters the Great Hall, he sits down, Dumbledore motions for him to sit down at Dumbledore's right hand. Like, it's it's the seat to his right. That was mentioned in it. I thought that's important. So, he really does trust Moody. They're, they're old friends, and uh, he trusts his teachers, too. So, final thought, um, they all go up to bed, and Harry, uh, it's it, unlike before, where he's had dreams, um, you know, of things that that become relevant. This time, he's actually just awake, and as he's going to bed, he's thinking um, fondly of hoodwinking the the age line and uh, winning the Triwizard Tournament. Uh, J.K. Rowling writes that he sees Cho's face in the crowd when he has done this, and is uh. particularly glad that Ron cannot see... Uh, Ron, who's next to him in the other bed, I uh, cannot see what what he is seeing as as he drifts off to sleep. So young love, nothing like it. Yeah. Did, one thing I wanted to bring up: Did we discuss at all how um, you know Moody was attacked? Was that brought up at all in these chapters? I thought it was. It was. It was. Uh, um, but, but it's I, yeah. Yeah, I, I thought it was weird that somebody as powerful as him would set up a trap like trash cans. I mean. That's a little novice. Well, it wasn't him who set up trash, right? Or, oh yeah, he. No, that was his trap to let to let him know if somebody was approaching his property. 
And obviously, he was scouted by Barty Crouch Jr. and, and Peter Pettigrew, so they knew what to do. But it was, it was just, I mean, really, that's your defense? Trash cans? I mean, well, Pet- Pettigrew is completely absent from, or not this book, but, um, you know, I, I wonder if the, the trash can, the trash cans is what the ministry found when they got there. You know, I mean, there there could have been more permanent curses or, or, or something. But then again, I mean, maybe the real Moody was really buying into the idea that he might actually be more paranoid than he should be. Or, you know, we don't know the mental state of Mad-Eye Moody at this point. So I wonder if he wasn't, in fact, just uh, actually, actually pretty crazy. And it turns out for a good reason. Or is it just that the trap is so stupid it just might work? You know, like, you know <laughs> I, I like, think that's it. <laughs> Who would ever suspect trash can? You know, I don't know. I just thought I'd bring it up. Well, that wraps up chapter by chapter this week. We're done another three chapters, boys. Good work. Yes. Now let's move on to Muggle Mail. First email comes from Rebecca Jackson, 15 of Vancouver. She writes, hey, Mugglecasters, just wanted to give my thoughts on how Fred and George predicted the Quidditch World Cup. Is it possible they just predicted off of what they already knew about the two teams? Harry, after seeing the match, remarks on how the Irish Chasers were too good and that Bulgaria was never going to catch up, so Crum ended it on his terms. Maybe maybe Fred and George already knew of the Irish Chaser of the Irish Chasers skill and Crum's nature as they were big Quidditch fans. Just my thoughts. Keep on being awesome. Love, Rebecca. And we got a lot of emails similar to this one in response to our chapter by chapter discussion for episode two oh eight. Mike and Eric, a lot of people think that they just they made a educated guess. So yeah, I think that's probably uh, best a good answer. answer. Yeah, yeah, I think that that they're right. They they're pretty knowledgeable about Quidditch. So seems like a good uh, evaluation. Micah, how about you take that second email? Sure. The next email comes from. Tanya? Yes. You're right. <laughs> All right, next email. Ding, okay. India. <laughs> uh, from Tanya33 of Paoli, Indiana. And she says, in episode 28, Wannabe Wizards, you guys were wondering about the Voldemort voiceover in the TV spot where he mentions the ha- Harry's heart. I believe this is the scene where Ron destroys the locket Horcrux. The quote is, I have seen your heart and it is mine. This is taken directly from the book and is directed at Ron, page 375 in the U.S. hardcover. I think they simply took it out of context for use in the TV spot. Thought you guys may find this helpful. The show is fantastic. Keep up the good work. Tanya and uh, yeah I, she's definitely right we uh, we talked about this uh, f- if people haven't listened to on the episode 209 the live trailer analysis um, we mentioned it towards the end of the episode um, because it's in that trailer as well and we have gotten a lot of emails about this as well yeah. so wanted to bring it up again yep so. I'll take uh, the next one Eric yep. the final email final email please. from Katrina from Minneapolis uh, subject is Mrs. Weasley's marriage. She says, hello, everybody. I'm listening to episode 208 right now, and you guys are talking about the Weasley's marriage and whether it is a healthy one. Did we talk about that? I think it is a very healthy marriage and that they very much love each other. Molly is simply a mother hen. Let me tell you, as a mom of three kids under four, they drive you nutters. I'd be when they first met, Molly was a lot like Ginny. Exciting. Oh, I, I bet when they first met, Molly was a lot like Ginny. 
exciting, energetic, brave, and those traits still show through, but now she has such a huge responsibility of a family, you have to keep a tight leash. I mean, come on. If you had Fred and George's children, would you give them an inch? No way. You would discipline them like crazy and just hope they turn out all right without killing one of their siblings on accident. That's a good point. It reminds me of the time that uh, one of them tried to force Ron into an unforgivable vow. Anyway... That was me. That was me. Not not reading them. Uh, Mr. Weasley, Mr. Weasley, hiding things from his wife isn't sneaky or malicious. It is simply keeping things from her that would rile her up. She has a temper, and probably Molly knows all about the things he does because she's a sharp cookie. He is probably leaving spark plugs all over the house. He is such a scatterbrain. <laughs> Super laid back, unorganized men like Arthur usually marry strong-willed women. That is what my marriage is. Molly's job is to keep her family healthy and safe, and though her family has pushed her sanity to its limits, needing the clock that says where everyone is, for instance, she is still warm, loving, and down-to-earth, just like any good mother. I think Arthur and Molly are a perfect match. Well, I, it was nice to get a uh, opinion from a mother on this topic. Yeah. And um, even though I still don't completely agree with her because she thinks uh, it's a very healthy ma- marriage. I mean... Though granted, oh, what heck, what do I know? I'm not married. I'm just bitter. <laughs> so now moving on, as promised at the top of the show, we are going to play an old favorite segment. Favorites! And this episode, we're talking about new actors or actresses to see in part one. Mike and Eric, while you guys are thinking about your favorite actor or actress, new favorite actor or actress in part one, I'm going to read some of the listeners thoughts on their favorites and these were sent in to us via twitter dr gracie writes i'm really looking forward to seeing rise iphens he's a really wonderful actor and very underrated of course he is going to play xenophilius love good i think it's riss so, Riss. You don't, so you don't get emails riss iphen iphens is that Riss-ifens. right yeah riss iphens i could kate, be wrong but kate siv writes i can't wait to see bill nye he's amazing bill nye or Bill Nye. <laughs> I think it's Bill Nye. These Brits. Isn't it Bill Nye? We've talked about this before. I think it's Bill Nye. I can't wait to see Bill Nye. He's amazing. Also, Rise Iffens. <laughs> Did I get it right that time? <laughs> actually, we'll actually awesome you got to put it into... I'm going to put it into Microsoft Narrator and see. <laughs> see. <laughs> okay, we'll blame you. We'll blame Bill Gates. We'll send him all our hate mail. <laughs> Marie Aaron writes, I'm definitely most looking forward to Jamie Bauer Campbell. Of course, he's going to play Grindelwald or Young she Grindelwald. She had replied, <laughs> "Jamie Power." Yeah, Heather R D writes, "I'm most looking forward to seeing Bill Nye. I've been waiting for him to get cast in HP for years." Peculiar Ways writes, "Domhnall Gleeson as Bill Weasley. I've never seen him act before. Just know that his dad is Brendan Gleeson, who of course plays Mad Eye." Jasmine's Wings writes, "Charlie, because they took him out of the previous ones." <laughs> And finally, Spazzo writes, Yaxley in The Chase After Ron. So, Micah, who who are you most looking forward to seeing? That's, uh, I mean, I think uh, I would have to go with uh, Bill Nye as, as Scrimgeour. I think, you know, sort of that interesting dynamic that he has to play between uh, the press and, uh, and, of course, the trio. I'm interested. Uh, of course, Eric has seen... The movie, oh, don't so keep he knows what that that's up. like. Uh, no, I'm saying that that you know how uh, Bill has has done um, in this role, 
And, uh, you know, I'd be interested to hear, like, do you think he fit the part well? Yeah, absolutely. Like, it was weird, kind of, because, depending on, you know, how they're casting, it was just like he had been in all of the previous films. It's like, he was, he, he kind of had this friendly look about him that, that it's, it's like you had grown up watching him on screen, but you hadn't. But, yeah, he, he, he fits the part. Yeah, so he, he would probably be my, my top choice. And then everybody seems to, uh, also want to see Riss Eifens as, uh, Xenophilius Lovegood. Okay, Eric, how about you? Uh, actually, my favorite person who's a new character in Deathly Hallows Part 1 is Andy Linden, who plays Mundungus Fletcher. I was going to say, is that from seeing the movie, or would you have said that prior to <laughs> Yeah, I would not have said that prior to seeing the movie. I'm sorry. <laughs> so he does a good job, is what you're saying. Yeah, as Mundungus Fletcher. And, and the reason I bring it up and choose him is because um, reading about him billing the ministry for his 12-bedroom tent with ensuite jacuzzi in this in this chapter that we just read for chapter by chapter, um, it, it seems like the kind of thing that this actor would would very much do. He's 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 just uh, he's just sleazy and un- unreliable in in, in Deathly Hallows Part One, the movie. To uh, break the uh all the answers that we're seeing here, I'm going to say my favorite, and this technically doesn't count, but um, my two favorites are Miranda Richardson and Imelda Staunton. And I say that because they haven't, we haven't seen them in a while. Uh, of course, Miranda Richardson, who plays Rita Skeeter, we haven't seen her since Gobble of Fire. And Imelda Staunton, who plays Umbridge, we haven't seen her since Order of the Phoenix, and I miss them. Who, which one of them was it that said that they didn't think that they would be back? It's Miranda Richardson, Richardson. yeah. She said that at the Goblet of Fire premiere. I was very upset at her. <laughs> she was like, oh, I'd rather give uh, somebody else a chance to do it. Uh, but she's back. I think she said she's she'd back. rather sell one of her kids, actually, than never show. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> that's how much she hated it. Uh, but it's going to be a small appearance. I think she's just going to be in, in, a, in, a, in a picture I, or something. I, I think, but yeah. she is there. Hazel Douglas, who plays Bethilda Backshot? No. Oh, uh, she's just... Uh, just the creepy, creepy. That's like, that's like Mrs. Fig, except, except Mrs. Fig is worse because Mrs. Fig wasn't supposed to be creepy, and she was really, really, really creepy. To wrap up the show today, we have a chicken soup email. This comes from Haley, fourteen, of Fort Calhoun, Nebraska. She writes, "Hi, Muggle Casters. I'm your biggest fan. No joke. I listen to your show twenty four seven, literally. I have severe insomnia, and your show helps me to fall asleep at night." Because I spend so much time with my earbuds in, I get lots of annoyed looks from my parents and siblings. My brother will take one look at me and say, MuggleCast, <laughs> and ignore me for the rest of the day. Not that that is a bad thing sometimes. My mom has to tell me at least three times a day to take out your earbuds and listen to me. Well, one rainy afternoon, I turned on my computer to find a new episode waiting for me. After doing my ritual dance of joy, I popped my earbuds in to hear the wonderful sound of your voices once more. Okay, the thing with me is, I cannot just sit and listen to music. I have to do something. So I set about cleaning our living room and ended up cleaning the entire house. My mom was shocked and pleased to find this and asked me to, and asked me what my motive was. MuggleCast, I replied. My family has a new respect for your show now. They get almost excited as me when there's a new episode. It's Haley cleaning the house time. She's quoting her mother there. So here's a thank you from my whole family for your great podcast, and we all will be angry beyond imagination if you stop podcasting. Well, uh, for your mother's sake, I know she wants a clean house, so we will continue podcasting. You nice. know, I don't listen. 
I don't listen to my own podcast while cleaning, but I do listen to other podcasts while cleaning. It's, uh, you know, like doing the dishes and stuff. I mean, I'm not going around dusting, <laughs> turning on a podcast, <laughs> you know, long term tasks that take a little bit of time. And, and, and like Haley, I too do a ritual jan- dance of joy whenever a new episode is released of MuggleCast. So, so all that is my good. favorite noodle soup. Yeah, that was really nice. Thank you, Haley. So, uh, before we let everyone go, we want to remind you about our website, which is MuggleCast.com. There you'll find lots of information pertaining to this wonderful Harry Potter program that we produce every other week for your listening pleasure. You can find the link to our iTunes page where you can subscribe and review, review us. You can also follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, vote for us on Podcast Alley. We haven't plugged that in a while. And so yeah. much more. We haven't been on there in a while. <laughs> you, can easily, you can even find the, our new P.O. Box address. Which is Andrew Sims, MuggleCast, P.O. Box 3634, Fullerton, California, 92834-3634. That was a mouthful. So just visit MuggleCast.com. Click on Contact at the top and you'll see the P.O. Box. And while you're there, you can also uh, fill out a little feedback form to email us. If you have a question about what we talked about on the show today, or maybe uh, you disagree with something we said... Or maybe you want to yell at Eric Moore for playing a song on episode 208 for no good reason. You can use the feedback form for anything. We're going to play a song in this episode. You can just edit it in later. Nobody died. Well, the, the, yeah, yeah, I feel like there was a first year who fell in the lake and wasn't accounted for and nobody remembered him because he was unpopular. I and know. Yes. No, we'll need listener permission before we do that again. They were very upset, Eric. I'm sorry. Thanks, everyone, for listening. I'm Andrew Sims. I'm Eric Skull. And I'm Micah Tannenbaum. We'll see you next time for episode 211. Bye-bye, yar. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>